Welcome to the Loop Ventures Neurotech Podcast. I'm Doug Clinton. On today's show, we have Mark Farrow. Mark is a postdoctoral researcher at Stanford University, and he's exploring how to make better implantable hardware for brain-computer interfaces. In our conversation, we talk about Mark's work on NeuroRoots, a novel approach to implantable sensors, the fundamental principles on how to make better implants, and the importance of a cross-disciplinary approach to developing novel technology. And with that, I bring you Mark Farrow. Mark, welcome to the show. Hey, Doug. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on. So to start, if you could, would you give us a little bit about your background and how you became involved in the world of neuroscience? Absolutely. Right now, I am doing my postdoc at Stanford in the material science department. So to start a little bit on how I got involved, it's kind of like a weird story. I got involved right at the end of my master. I was mainly working in computer science and cybersecurity, which the field was great, a little uh, lonely. You're going to talk about your research as much. And this professor from Cornell just came to the institute I was in, opened a department on bioelectronics. And bioelectronics, eight years ago, was kind of like this ambition of how can we be at the intersection between material science, novel material, and neuroscience and health. And I just kind of like heard the calling on that and like wrapped up my project in uh, security and started to get involved into bioelectronics and especially how to make electronics implantable in the body. And from there... It's been a minute, but actually it's been eight years. <laughs> so I've been working on brain implants since then. Time does go fast. And as you've been researching implants for the brain and through your work with materials and into brain-computer interfaces, what do you see as the biggest challenges or opportunities in that space today from a materials perspective? So I think the focus really evolved. So back then when I started my PhD the lab was especially focused into the sensor part. So you implant these electronics and like part of it is to transmit the signal and part of it is actually to record the signal from your brain. So when I say signal, that mainly electrical signal from the neurons in your brain, but that can also be chemical sensing because there is a lot of chemical communication or like hormones that are like also temperature sensing. So there are like a lot of modality. I was especially working and the field was especially focusing actually on how to make this sensor better. So using like materials that mimic the brain, for example, instead of using bare metals, using polymers that are like also electrically conductive, but are like more squishy, a little bit like a conductive sponge, do increase the signal quality quite a bit. But then I realized that in terms of sensors, there is like a long history on it and like you can always make it better. But like a few years ago, so when I arrived at Sanford, my new obsession in a way was how can we deliver this electronic in the brain in a way that's more integrative? So when I say integrative, instead of like just putting this 
kind of nail in the brain that has the sensor. And like, I'm being a little dramatic when I sell nail, but still, it's like pretty rudimentary. You have something stiff and you implant that into the tissue, just like a syringe and leave it there and like do your thing, record, stimulate. And I was like, well, actually, I think that's the main limitation because doing sensors, we know, doing miniaturization, we know. I mean, we have a lot in our phone. What we're really missing as a field is how can we make this standard electronics implantable in a way that we just respect the environment of the brain, respect the tissue, just integrate and kind of like form this interface that is able to like communicate in a sustainable way with like all the cells in the brain. And from there, that's what I've been like working over the past almost four years now. It's a great focus. And one question, as I've always thought about the implantation process and using sort of polymers as part of that process, I've always kind of thought about that part of it more to help avoid rejection of a foreign object into the body. But it sounds like your work with some of the polymers is not just about that, but it's also about improving the signal or maybe even acquiring additional information that you wouldn't otherwise with a traditional brain implant. Is that the right way to think about it? Absolutely. So implantation is one of the modalities. So it's like usually when you implant things in the body, and that can be the brain or some other part of the body, you have to think about what is the initial injury, insult that you make to the tissue. And then like, what is the chronic stability and like injury you're going to keep with the body? Implantation is one, but how to make that stable in the body is another one. So for example, for brain implant, the Utah array exists for probably 20 years. And like a lot of the implants, you can put it in the brain and like record signal at first. But over like a few weeks, people do realize that if you have something that's not flexible and doesn't move, like follow the motion of your brain, you're going to start losing cells. The brain is going to move a little bit, but your implant is going to be rigid. And like the relative motion of the cell is going to make that cell go away and you lose the signal. So for brain-machine interface, it's actually a big problem because once you record and make sense of this recording, you want to keep the same cell population because you kind of like deciphered the code of this population. But if that population of neuron moves away and your implants stay exactly at the same spot, you're going to have to recalibrate again and again. And that's a big problem. That's a really helpful visual for me. You know, if I think about a nail and a piece of wood, if you wiggle around the nail, it might still stick in the wood, but the connection is obviously not as good. It sounds similar to what you're describing. Yeah. I mean, in this image, it's even like a nail in the jello. So, you know, like if you move the nail, it's just like, yeah, that's not going to work out. <laughs> and so it sounds like as you're describing some of these alternative materials and alternative ways to respect the tissue a little bit more, it's culminating in your work on neuroroots, which I know you've published some work on. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So NeuroRoot was a project that's a little bit integrative of a lot of the literature that's out there and kind of like take the best of each technology and like put them together to make that highly usable. We kind of started this project with like some goals. And the way we acquired those goals, well, just like go see neurosurgeons and uh, people that work with this technology and are like, well, what's the requirement of the ideal implants? 
And, you know, it's like a hard problem. So there are like a lot of different modalities. But when you summarize all those, it's actually four points. So the first one is it has to be ultra compliant and ultra flexible. And we just discussed about that has to like move with the brain and be like this kind of soft electronics and not like rigid piece of now. The second thing that's tied to that is it has to be low damage. And it has to be low damage during insertion and like after insertion. So the minimum, the damage and the best chance you have for the electronics to be stable within the brain and the tissue. And then when you think about clinical application, for example, you realize that this electronics has also to be unobtrusive, meaning that the surgical practice has to be absolutely minimal. And also the form factor of the implant has to be almost invisible. You don't want like anything outside of your head and uh, you don't want like all those like connectors outside and like kind of bulky apparatus. And the last thing that's very important is the number of sensors you have on this implant has to be able to scale. So right now, the brain machine interface implants, they are able to record about 100 to 200 neurons. And with only 100 to 200 neurons out of the 80 billion in our brain, researchers are able to actually make sense of it and make people move prostheses or like cursor on the screen only using their thoughts. So those are like the four requirements. And from that, actually, I designed the neural roots, which is kind of like artificial axons. So the way to imagine that is when you take a look at the brain, you have all those cells and they communicate with each other, right? On average, one neuron has about a thousand neighbors that they talk to. And the way they do that is actually with tiny micro wires in a way called axons. And we're like, hey, actually, how about if we make artificial axons? Because that's the way it's done in the brain. So it's probably the best bet we have. And we designed that platform called Neural Roots. So the roots is kind of like, imagine you have these bundles of like very tiny microwire, microaxons that you're able to implant in the brain and they just integrate within the tissue. And the shape, flexibility of those roots is exactly the same as axons in the brain. And with that, you have electronics that is the same flexibility and size as uh, what is in the brain. And you're also able to record single neurons talking with each other. So I talked a little bit about what's going on at the tip of the implant. Now, the implant as a whole, early versions we had were 32 electrodes, which is good for research. And now we're developing a platform where we're actually able to connect those roots to a microchip and scale up the number of electrodes to uh, multiple thousands. So I think the latest we have is a little more over 2,000 electrodes, simultaneous recording and stimulations. Now we are just about to like start actually insertion and experiments with like so many electrodes and kind of like, I don't know, like discover things because this type of implant doesn't exist yet. We're pushing that research forward. So um, very excited about what we're able to do with all this information that we're going to get. And just for a frame of reference, I know 
on the past on the show, we've talked a little bit about this concept around neural mesh or neural lace. It sounds a little bit like NeuroRoots is sort of similar to that. How would you compare and contrast those two approaches? Neural lace as of which one? <laughs> because there are a few. I can compare it to the paradromics technology. We can certainly talk about paradromics. We always love to uh, as one of our portfolio companies. I was thinking more of, I think I've read or seen some concepts that are this sort of injectable lace that naturally expands in the brain. Absolutely. So this research has been going on in uh, Harvard for a while. So Kurt Lieber is the person that invented the concept of mesh electronics. And uh, mesh electronics is electronics that has a form factor that is very open. And they kind of like demonstrated that for like the long term, when you have such design, you actually reduce the damage you do to the brain and have like stable electronics in the brain using that form factor. The thing is with this one, the injectable, the problem is it's very difficult to use. So when you look at the details of how this technology works, it's loaded in a syringe and then injected in the brain and while you do the injection, you like slowly remove the syringe. And it's kind of like a little tricky to use. So when you think about like clinical applications, talking with neurosurgeons, they don't want to deal with like anything overly complicated. So this approach was like extremely remarkable for research purpose, but for something that's going to translate, it's too complicated. And also the initial injury you do with the big syringe is also like has some limitation. So for that, I mean, uh, NeuroRoots is definitely inspired partly from this technology, but the approach we have is as opposed to using a syringe to inject this electronic, we just assemble all this electronic on a very tiny microwire. And we've done like also some research in the lab on like what is tiny for the brain and what small is small. And like when you insert something that's like hair thin, is that actually small for the brain? because nothing says that air should be going in the brain. We realized that once you use something that is 20 micron and below for like insertion into the brain, you don't do much damage and you avoid the bleeding and you avoid most of the destruction that initially happened when inserting object in the brain. So we took that research, took the neural roots and kind of like assemble them together. So when we're about to insert, the form factor of this implant is about 30 microns. So that's the size of a single neuron. So we insert that and it's still very, very small. So we don't do damage during insertion and we don't do damage after insertion at all. That's the difference between the two. The second thing that is also pretty distinct is the scalability. So we worked out all the details for like the connector because everyone that works in this field knows the ugly secret that uh, holds research and like technology back is the connector. So I'm pretty excited to say that I think we like really troubleshooted that. And now we have like a connector that's extremely small and like thousands of electrodes. So we're in pretty good shape to have all that very well integrated together and uh, highly usable also in clinical setting. And how do you pass the microwire through the skull? We drill a little hole. <laughs> so it's definitely invasive to the brain, but the standard practice is two millimeters or hole. It's relatively tiny. 
when you discuss that with neurosurgeon, they're like two millimeters is absolutely fine. You can do that routinely. The recovery for patient is pretty fast, like an hour or two, and that's okay. As a comparison, other techniques that requires bigger craniotomy, the recovery takes like several days. As you've been developing NeuroRoots, you, you mentioned doing some trials. Are you doing some first trials with animal substrates? Is that the next step? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we've been doing like animal testing for a few years now, have very good results. So now it's kind of like a very interesting time where we can definitely keep pushing the animal experiments for more like the fundamental neuroscience so we have like collaborators on campus that we work with and try to make custom implants for specific challenges. Like, do you want to record like all the cells in a certain region or do you want to record different regions of the brain at the same time and kind of like starting to make sense of how the brain process some function? So that's one path. And the second path is definitely, are we just at the good time to make that also useful for the people that need it? And that's a very interesting journey that definitely takes uh, work and preparation, but I'm pretty hopeful on that. That's really exciting. You're in a, a unique position as someone who's deep into developing this technology. I'd love to know how you think about assuming your experimentation continues to go well and show promise, how you bring it to broader market. Do you think of yourself as almost an academic entrepreneur? Do you think of yourself as someone who wants to start a business or partner with an existing company? Like, what's your longer term thought horizon on that? That's a very good question. Actually, I've been thinking about academic entrepreneur as a term <laughs> because I think depending on the field, actually, researchers are like definitely entrepreneurs, but they kind of get stuck into like entrepreneurial framework forever in the sense that you're never going to scale necessarily your team and revenue. It's like you're always starting something. I think the question is, first of all, like when is the good time to lose some of the agile environment that you have, which is, you know, like research framework and uh, really focusing on making this technology and this implant the best product and not necessarily like tackling some unknown challenges in the brain. I mean, it's kind of unique because they go a little together. So that's an interesting question. And the second one is there are definitely opportunities now to do pretty much all those options. So, you know, staying in academia or starting something or like working with a company. And that's something that's being discussed right now. It's kind of like going in parallel. So nothing is really settled yet, but it's very exciting. It's very exciting because I think the brain-computer interface and the technology to make that happen is definitely came to like a broader audience. So now the general public knows, and I think Neuralink getting in the game also brought like a lot of attention. And I think people realize that a lot of things that people used to think is sci-fi is actually not that far off. I'm more talking about the clinical applications, but those are possible and they require like an entire village to make that happen. So I think it's a community effort. And for NeuroRoots, yeah, everything is still open. So don't know yet. It's, I think, a great time to be developing novel solutions for 
neuroscience. And you've touched on actually kind of my last line of questioning for you, which is sort of the community itself. And I'm curious to know, given that you have actually sort of a diverse background that brings together CS and neuroscience, what do you think teams need to look like in terms of skill sets to be successful in developing useful technologies in the BCI or broader neurotech space? Well, it's pretty broad. And as you said, it's a lot of combined fields together. I think culturally people in this field have to know a little bit of everything, right? So you cannot be like like a pure CS or like a pure double E person. So for example, like developing a chip for like brand recordings, you have to know what you're recording and, you know, what are the specs in a way which are not necessarily making the best chip, but for example, making a chip that doesn't heat up as much or kind of like what part of the signal are you actually interested in? And it's this whole blend of multicultural that makes it happen. So it's pretty broad. So I would say material science, engineering for like the development of the implant itself, a large portion of like double E for like making the communication and like signal acquisition and transmission. Definitely people that knows regulation, neurosurgeons. The way I like to approach my research is I mean, it's a very California, Stanford way, but it's definitely user-centered. So if you're going to be like doing an implant, you need to talk with the people that are implanted and you need to talk with the people that are going to deliver this implant. And you need to talk with people that knows what's the regulation, what's possible to do. So I think those are like especially important to make that right. Because it's very easy to make the best tech and not necessarily a tech that's going to work out for the people. I think that your insight around the cross-disciplinary nature is a really important one. And something that we've seen, I think, a lot in terms of guests on this show and the people we've worked with, you know, everything from mixtures of hard science backgrounds, like you said, double E, CS, traditional neuroscience, and even some of the softer science stuff like psychology. I think it creates unique perspectives that you don't get if you're only steeped in one element of the overall picture. So I think it's such an important thing to see in people that are developing this technology. And it's really exciting to hear about your background related to it. Yeah, absolutely agree. So last question, Mark, how we like to ask is, do you have any books or papers maybe even that you've read recently that you think provide a really good overview or perspective on the neuroscience field that you would recommend us all read? Ah, oh, that's a good one. So I'm a fan of the show. So I've been like thinking hard those last days about this question. I read so much, it's difficult to settle on one thing. But okay, maybe here is a resource that I haven't heard yet in the show, and it's really good. So there is this organization that's like a few years old. It's called like BrainMind. So BrainMind.org. And they organize summit twice a year. And I think the talks are online on their website and they are of incredible quality. So this has to be checked out for sure. And the second one, I think it's a book, not about neuroscience, but it's the art of motorcycle maintenance because you need a lot of Zen <laughs> to, for this research, because, you know, it's like a lot about understanding what you do deep in the details, but like keeping the big picture and like this uh, very integrative lifestyle approach 
like what are the actual problem you're trying to solve and not necessarily getting trapped into, hey, I want to make this best thing or this best thing of the puzzle, but really working on the big picture and staying zen. <laughs> great advice. We have not actually had someone recommend BrainMind, but it's a great recommendation. We will add it to the show notes. I've had actually multiple people recommend Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, and I have yet to read it. So Mark, that, that's one I'm going to personally take, and I will get it on my reading list in the next couple of weeks. Well, that's all we have for you today, Mark. Appreciate the time. Thank you for joining us. Great. Thank you so much. <laughs> 